Welcome to the next in a series of Ask a Chair podcasts brought to you by SAEM Rams. Well, we're here with Dr. Rathleff, who's currently the Chair of Emergency Medicine for the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State Health. Dr. Rathleff, thank you so much for agreeing to come and share your insight with our medical students and residents. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Um, You are known for being a leader in many places. So could you start out by describing how you first become a department chair? Was this a lifelong dream or was this something that more happened or came about along the way? This was not a lifelong dream. My dream was always to become an academic faculty member. That's what I really wanted to do when I was in medical school. And and my dream eventually became, uh, came true. In 1986, I became a faculty member at Boston City Hospital and the residency training program. And over the subsequent several years, I held a number of positions. I was director of the graduate medical education for medical students. I was director of research and eventually became very interested in education. And uh, the way this evolved was essentially that we had a residency that actually began. Uh, I was one of the, if you will, pioneers that helped start the residency at Boston City Hospital. And over time, it just became clear to me that there were things that I would do differently than the way the residency was currently set up. And I think it was the motivation to change things for the better that led me to eventually want to become an associate program director. I eventually became a program director, so I got a chance to actually implement some of the changes that I really wanted to see in place. And I think I had some success doing that. Over time, um, I actually I had been program director. The story is kind of like this. I had been program director for about six months. And that was really my dream job at the time. And I still think that actually being program director is a dream job because you deal with uh, a group of highly motivated, intelligent young people who want to learn and are just soaking it all in and, and don't know all that much uh, when they certainly when they start as uh, interns. So I was six months into my dream job as program director. I thought I would do this for a long, long time. And my boss at the time came to me and said that he wanted me to be his vice chair. And I basically said, you know, I don't think so. I really love what I'm doing. Uh, This is what I've always wanted to do. And I've only been doing this for six months and I would prefer not to. He was, uh, my chair was a wonderful guy. He was, uh, he would do anything for you. So it was very, he was a type of person that it was difficult to say no to, mm-hmm. which I think is actually an important lesson when, uh, as a chair. Um, and so he said, okay, I came back to me about two weeks later and said, you know, Niels, I really want you to be the vice chair. And I said, you know, I really would like to, I'm, I'm concerned that I won't be able to be as involved with the residents. I'm concerned that I won't be able to produce academically if I get too involved in administrative issues. And so I would really prefer not to. But of course, I'm starting to sweat now because it was, again, <laughs> difficult to say no to this wonderful uh, person that I was working for. So he said, all right. Uh, He came back to me again about a week later and he said, I really, really want this to work. And I said, at that point, I felt like I could not say no. Um, And I said, I negotiated. I said, I want 
um, on Fridays, I want time off so I can sit and write so that I can produce academically. Because otherwise, I don't want to, and I said this, I don't want to be the academic vice chair or the operational vice chair for 20 years, and what I have to show for it is that I run an excellent department, but I have nothing to show for it in terms of uh, productivity, uh, publications, etc. And he said, all right. So I handed off to Beeper on Friday afternoons, so I had two um, operational leaders in the department and they basically answered the phones and the beepers and I had a chance to sit and write. So that was how I became vice chair and then I was vice chair for quite a long period of time and again I thought you know there are just things that I would do differently mm -hmm. in the department. If I had to, ch I would love to have the opportunity to actually implement changes on a departmental level and so I got that opportunity now almost 10 years ago when I became chair out at Bay State. So that's sort of the long-winded story as to how this happened. It was not a lifelong dream or mm -hmm. plan in any way. It really evolved over time. Excellent. Um, you've already touched on this, some of like the major stepping stones in your path to becoming a leader or a chairman in particular in emergency medicine. Any other um, landmark moments or experiences that you had along the way that you would consider stepping stones to where you're at right now? Well, I would say, and I think that's probably true of most people, is as a, as a child, teenager, it was not, I did not see myself as a leader particularly. It was not my dream to be a leader. And I had a chance in college to uh, take on leadership positions because people basically asked me to. Mm -hmm. So I think they saw something, my colleagues saw something in me. Uh, that they wanted to build on and they wanted me to take on these positions and that's essentially what happened over time as well as a physician is that I think in this case my chair saw something some uh, evidently he saw some characteristics <laughs> in me that he thought would be beneficial uh, to him and his department as a vice chair and so that that's really how it came about I think mm -hmm. that it, I was encouraged by other people to do this and I will tell you that um, as a brand new vice chair and as a brand new leader, I'm, I probably made every mistake in the book. All the things that they don't teach you at Harvard Business School that you really should know. And it's important to have a network around you to ask the, the, the questions uh, when things become difficult. And they will. Whether you're a chief in a, a four-person group or it's 42, I have 42 physicians now working for me at Bay State Medical Center. Either way, there's going, there are going to be issues that you actually have to tackle and, and you have to learn how to do it. And there's no way to learn that by reading a book. Mm -hmm. You have to actually feel it um, on your back where you actually have to figure out how to make some tough decisions. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's an excellent segue. Um, what were some of the most difficult decisions that you had to make in your career? Kind of tell us about that decision process and anything that you may uh, wish you would have done differently. Well, there are many things that I wish I would have done differently. I'll tell you one of perhaps the most difficult situation I have ever had to deal with was um, a physician who was probably one of the most gifted physicians that I've ever worked with. Um, and. Um, I was a, a new leader in the group and I always sang her praises and talked about how great she was 
not only as a person, but also clinically. And it became clear to me that, that not everybody seemed to chime in all the time. And what I didn't realize is that she actually had a substance use problem mm-hmm. that I was not aware of. And no one told me. Mm-hmm. So I was brand new in this position. I was her boss. And no one said anything, although I know in retrospect that the nursing staff and all the mm-hmm. physicians knew, but no one wanted to say anything. So um, it what eventually happened was that um, she uh, actually got into an argument, I'll almost call it a fight, with one of our cardiologists on a clinical shift. And it turned out that she was actually right and the cardiologist was wrong. I forget mm-hmm. exactly what the issue was. But uh, the, there were, it was double coverage and the other physician who was the vice chair at the time came to me and said, you know, Neil, you should go out and just talk to this particular physician mm-hmm. and smell her breath. Mm-hmm. And so I did and I smelled, I thought I smelled something, but I wasn't certain. And so I said to her, look, um, we need to step aside for a minute and I think I might smell something and we need to get a blood test. And so long and short of it is she had a thermos with coffee that also was laced with something or other. Her at 11 a.m. in the morning, um, she had an alcohol level of 130 mm. and was still functioning pretty well, except mm-hmm. that she picked the fight. She was actually right. Keep that, remember that? She was right about which her interpretation of an EKG, I think. But um, so long story short, she got involved with the, the wellness committee for the state association for physicians was in treatment for a period of time. She came back to work. We had to test her mm-hmm. every day before work. And, and she was a very, very likable person, which is why it was difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and she eventually um, failed, showed up for work again, and was clearly intoxicated. There's, we were handwriting charts at the time, mm-hmm. and the handwriting started on one line and ended up at the bottom of the page. Uh, they told her, uh, the, the nurses told her they had called me and that I was coming in. She took off, drove away in her car, which is a little scary in and of itself because mm-hmm. she was intoxicated again, but she did, and we then had to let her go. So that was uh, very, very difficult because uh, primarily, I think, because she was, not only was she highly intelligent, very productive, very good with patients, but also a genuinely nice person that just had a problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what made it difficult. If, if you are not a very nice person, you're not productive, <laughs> and you show up um, and you are under the influence of substance use, um, it won't take long for you to lose your job. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it, lasted, it had lasted years before I ever arrived on the scene. It took me a while to figure it out as well. Mm-hmm. Now, there is, there is actually uh, some good news, uh, and I think this is worth uh, for people to know in that she went into treatment and a couple of years later uh, she actually called me with a quest for a transfer. I mm-hmm. was working at the trauma center. She was working at community ED. She was back working, had achieved sobriety and um, is still working to this day. Wow. So there's a, there is a silver lining to this mm-hmm. is that the truth is that um, although it was an incredibly difficult thing to do, this was actually in, in her best interest in mm-hmm, retrospect certainly. and the reason probably the reason why she's back as a productive emergency physician mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, I think that the, the lesson here, and there are many lessons in this, but the lesson is that you can't ignore when, when someone has issues and mm -hmm. is not performing well, and you might actually be doing them a favor by suggesting that it's time to do something mm -hmm. different, mm -hmm. at least temporarily. That's, a, that's an excellent um, story. I'm glad that it has a happy ending. Yes, well, I, I thought I would tell it because it does have a happy ending. I mean, they don't all have happy endings. Certainly. But this one does, and I think that there's mm -hmm. a great lesson in, in the story as well. That mm -hmm. as a leader, these are the, you, you have to be willing to have difficult conversations with mm -hmm. people, um, even with people that you like very much. And you have to have that level of objectivity when you deal with folks that work for you. Mm -hmm. Certainly. What would be your um, piece of advice or your pearl, so to speak, for a medical student or a resident who wants to pursue a career similar to what you've enjoyed um, in the administration and academic realm? What would you want them to know um, to help them succeed? I think getting the right training is important. So I actually uh, lead the SAM's um, committee for uh, fellowship approval for administrative fellowships, so mm -hmm. I'm obviously advocating for fellowship training and <laughs> administration. I do think that there is value to getting an MBA. I think that um, learning how, more than ever as a chair, learning how to manage people mm -hmm. and managing money is very important. It is critical, mm -hmm. actually. And you will get learn some of these things uh, in an MBA program. I think that's important during a fellowship. The other part of the training that's really important is you will be allowed to make mistakes mm -hmm. because you will have a limited amount of authority at the time and you will have the ability to go to the fellowship director and ask for questions. It's built in to a fellowship training program. So that really is the point of, of learning how to manage those very difficult situations when they come up. I learned it by doing it. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't have administrative fellowship when I was in training, so I learned by doing it, and I made plenty of errors, and it was hard. Mm -hmm. It was hard, and so what, what I would say is also you're going to make mistakes no matter, uh, no matter what you do in administration. You're going to make mistakes. Um, make sure you don't make the same mistake twice. Mm -hmm. I think making a mistake once is excusable as mm -hmm. long as you do it in good faith. I mean, anybody's allowed to make a mistake. You're not allowed to make the same mistake um, two or three times, I think. Then, then you really got to wonder is maybe you didn't learn from the first time. Mm -hmm. You didn't think about mm -hmm. really what the implications were of the decision you made and, and the result that came out of it. And you really ought to sit back and think about it. And good administrators will learn from, from mistakes that they make. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key. I mean, that's true in life. Certainly. As an academic faculty member, whether you're doing research, education, or administration, it's, it's true, no matter, but it is definitely true as an administrator. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this next question was sent in by a resident. Um, they didn't give their name, but I'm particularly interested in your response to this because I've noticed this a lot. Um, but as an operations expert, what are your thoughts on the tension between optimizing ED throughput and carving out time for reg resident education at academic institutions. Um, how do you balance that between teaching at the bedside and picking up the next patient as quickly as possible? 
Well, it's an excellent question, and I think that educators, and the same thing really applies to research. At, at times, you do research projects in the ED, and it might actually run counter to wanting to be maximally efficient mm -hmm. in the ED because mm -hmm. you're enrolling patients in randomized trials, Certainly. et cetera. But the truth is that this is not this is not an either or uh, decision that you have to make. This mm -hmm. is an and. You have to do all of those. Mm -hmm. And you have to do all of those because it is important for part of the mission, important mission that we do is educating medical students and residents. And if you don't do a good job of that, uh, you will not be educating our future physicians and leaders. Mm -hmm. And if you don't spend the time uh, with doing uh, good randomized controlled trials, you will not be furthering our knowledge of emergency medicine. So I think the answer is you have to figure out how to do both. Mm -hmm. And there are times, and there are certainly times, the ED is not crazy every single minute. There are times, mm -hmm. and in our ED, which is probably similar to your ED at Cincinnati, mm -hmm. I would be willing to bet, because <laughs> most EDs are like this. Typically, I would say between 6 o'clock in the morning to maybe 8 in the morning seems to be the quietest time. Mm -hmm. And there is time then where you can spend 10, 15 minutes, and you mm -hmm. don't have to spend an hour, but you can spend 10, 15 minutes on uh, several pearls mm -hmm. uh, on a given topic that you want to convey to your trainees. And that's what we, mm -hmm. we do, and I think it's, we owe it to them. Certainly. Uh, residents um, provide a lot of service. Mm -hmm. They do. And if we didn't have residents, we'd have to hire a lot of attendings, probably... <laughs> If you have, you know, probably at least one attending for every three residents mm -hmm. is about my guess is what we'd have to hire. So we owe it to residents to provide high quality education uh, because um, they are working extremely hard. I remember what it was like as a resident and any pearl or an attending would come with an article and say here, here's sort of the gist of, of what this article is trying to tell you was like this major day. Mm -hmm when you got that kind of teaching. And I think not only do we owe it to them, it's in our best interest because in the future, someday, who knows, I might be coming to your ED and you care and I need you to know exactly what you're doing, right? So, mm -hmm. so there, is, there is that level of interest as well. Mm -hmm. so, so you have to be able to do all of these things. And you know, once in a while, you do have five, 10 minutes where you, and you can accomplish a lot in five, mm -hmm. 10 minutes in terms of teaching your residents. Um, about an important topic that they might not be um, completely up on at the time. So it sounds to me like it's both a balance throughout the day. You know the times that may not be as busy, but it's also maximizing those little bits of time between I think tasks. so. T typically after 11 a.m., between 11 a.m. and maybe 5 or 6 p.m., mm -hmm. it is quite difficult. And the teaching that I do then is really feedback. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do now? Let's say we're intubating patient. What meds are you going to give? What's the dose you're going to give? And after the procedure is done, I always take the residents aside. Even if it's 10 seconds and just say, this was good. You did this really well. Here's what I, you might do differently. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is what I'd like you to do. And, it, and I'll interrupt them in the middle of the procedure if I think it's necessary. Mm -hmm. but, but I think that it doesn't have to take, during those peak periods of time is probably not the time to sit down. Maybe in the middle of the night too. There are nights mm -hmm. that are slower. Certainly. Maybe Sunday nights, for example, are slower where you might actually have time to sit down for, for um, 10, 15 minutes and actually go over a topic. Mm -hmm. 
So I think you have to you have to know there's a science to all this to the the ebbs and flows of emergency department flow, and you have to know exactly when when it typically works. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you brought up feedback in the context of learning and education because I know as a learner, some of the best learning that I have had is from the feedback that I've gotten. So I'm glad that you pointed that out as such an important component of learning. Well, sometimes uh, the best feedback is the constructive feedback that you learn most Certainly. from because everybody likes to hear, you did a great job, you did a great job, you did a great job, and that's fine, but mm -hmm. you don't learn that much from that because mm -hmm. We all know that we're not perfect, and there are always things we can do better. And I, I also remember my my boss, my first boss, was always very complimentary. Even mm -hmm. if I knew that I hadn't done the best job that I could have, it was always good job. You did a great job. And what you really want to hear is when I asked my, I had my review from my boss mm -hmm. recently, and I asked him, so what are the things that you would like me to stop doing that I'm currently doing? And what are the things you would like me to start doing that I'm not doing? Which is a fair question. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what you want to know. And um, he didn't have a lot to say. And I was a little disappointed because even at this stage of my career, there are things that I can do better. And, and you need that kind of feedback to do the best job possible. Right. Yeah. Always opportunities to grow. Yeah. Um, any other advice that you would like to give to our residents and medical students that are listening? Are you asking specifically with respect to administration or with... In general. With, always be humble. I think that that is, I think that hubris and pride can get in the way of patient care and can get in the way of your own education. Always be humble. Always be willing to ask the question, uh, even if it's of someone who I, for example, will ask my residents a question. I, we have, we're a Cerner shop. I get lost in Cerner. I don't use it as much as they do. They're much more efficient than I am. Mm -hmm. and, and you have to be willing to ask the question because if you don't and you start taking risks and, and acting on what you think you might know, mm -hmm. but you actually don't know it uh, with 100% certainty and it's important, um, then you got to figure it out. And sometimes the residents can answer it for you or ask the nurse. There are several times that I can recount in, in my career, certainly, when I've seen a patient, I didn't actually think the patient was terribly ill, mm -hmm. and half an hour later, a nurse, I remember this very specifically, this was back at City Hospital, a nurse came to me, you know, Niels, you better get back in there because this patient is actually looking really bad, mm -hmm. and she was right, and I was wrong, and so you have to, you have, to have that level of humility to be um, an outstanding performer, I think. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of You're your welcome. day to join us, sir. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure that You're the welcome. residents and medical students listening appreciate it as well. You're very welcome. Thank you.